BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Going back to the 1990s, horrific crimes like the kidnapping and murder of Polly Class have been used to justify harsh anti-crime policies, like California's Three Strikes Law. The voices of crime victims, including Polly's father, were often front and center promoting those policies. But a new movement is emerging that centers other survivors of crime and their families, especially women of color, who are often overlooked by a system that's supposed to help them with services and support. This hour, how the conversation about justice for survivors of crime is shifting, providing a counterbalance to the traditional conversation and what it could mean for the politics around criminal justice. Join us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in today for Mina Kim. And this hour, the changing conversation around crime victims' rights. For decades, the loudest voices of crime victims usually rallied behind tougher anti-crime and punishment policies like the Three Strikes Law, or against reforms like ending cash bail. But a counterbalance to that point of view is growing, a movement to give more prominence to survivors of crime and their families who often don't get equal access to things like restitution and victim services that state law calls for, and who don't necessarily oppose reforms like restorative justice and reducing incarceration. So we're going to be talking about all of that this hour. Joining me, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent with us here at KQD, co-host of KQD's Political Breakdown every week with me. Yeah, you know me, Good Scott. to see you. Good to see you. <laughs> uh, also, Lenore Anderson. She's president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice. They advocate for public safety policy reform. Lenore, good to see you. Good morning. And joining us by phone is Paris Davis. He is Intervention Director for Youth Alive. That's an Oakland-based organization that works to prevent violence and intervene in conflict and also support those who are wounded and grieving with victim services. Paris Davis, welcome to you as well. Thank you. And let me begin with you, Marisa. Give us the big, the big picture of all this. Uh, you know, as I said at the top, you know, crime victims and we, we, for those of us who've covered these issues, you've covered them for de- like over a decade. Don't make me too hard, <laughs> I know, Scott. I almost yeah, said decades. decades. <laughs> Sorry. Um, people like 
to name a name, uh, Harriet Salerno, you know, up in Sacramento with an organization that has spoken for crime victims for many years. Talk about how that conversation, how you see it changing based on some of the reporting you're doing. Yeah, well, I'll speak um, for what I saw, you know, as as I sort of entered the political scene in the early 2000s. Um, Although I will say, you know, looking back to even before that, obviously, um, I was a teenager when Three Strikes passed. But it was, I mean, I think that there was a real sense in the 80s and 90s of this sort of fear, right? That there was this idea, especially with kids, that, you know, somebody could come abduct you. And there was a lot of sort of fear around crime, which, of course, was spiking in the 80s and 90s. Um, but, but by the time I got to Sacramento in the early 2000s, what you saw was a real alliance, yeah, between groups like Crime Victims United, one of the bigger sort of more uh, well-known uh, crime victims victims groups run by the Salerno family who had suffered a terrible loss of um, their daughter and and Nina Salerno's sister. Um, And then they had really joined forces in many ways with a lot of law enforcement. So the CCPOA, um, the union that that represents uh, prison workers, really put a lot of money into those types of organizations and helped them fund things that went on the ballot um, and really increased our criminal sentences. And I think a lot of people, including Lenore, would argue led us to where we ended up um, Um, in the 2000s with that Supreme Court order to reduce the prison population. So there was this symbiosis between victims' rights groups and law enforcement who largely supported longer sentences. And I think that there was a real um, sense that, you know, a lot of the people who spoke up and were put forward were often victims of I think random crimes often, right? You often had sort of more middle class, often white families who had had something horrific happen, being the one pushing these. Um, And when you kind of step back and think about it, though, those are not historically the communities that are most likely to interact with the criminal justice system. It's black and brown communities, marginalized communities that are not just victims of crime, but often also end up in the system. And so I think there's real oversight for many years of like, who are we talking about when we talk about crime survivors and victims? And and they were embraced and held up in part by, I think you mentioned the CPOA, the California Peace Officers Association, who have a a vested interest in sending people to prison, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that there's no question that your job as a labor union is to protect and grow your membership. And I think for many years, we saw CCPOA push policies, both in the state legislature, where they had enormous power. And I want to be clear, this was among Democrats and Republicans. This was not a one-party situation. Um, and Bill Clinton, for that matter, oh, embraced a lot yeah, of these I mean, things. I think, and Joe Biden. <laughs> right. And we're seeing, actually, if you think about it, a lot of parallels between the sort of rhetoric right now um, and some back I think, to criminal justice reform and where Democrats were at in the early 90s and 94 when the crime bill happened. Um, But yeah, certainly there was, I think, a, a, a financial, a monetary incentive for a lot of folks in law enforcement to see these sentences. And I think that also a lot of them believed in it. I mean, I I think, you know, both can be true, right? You can see that there's a reason that growing prisons is good for folks who work in prisons and, and are taking those jobs. And that also people who might be drawn to those jobs might believe that that is actually the answer. Sure. And Lenore Anderson, uh, you, of course, your organization presents an alternate point of view, but going up against groups like the ones Marisa just described is tough, right? I mean, they have a lot of money. They have a lot of political cachet. Their endorsement is sought out or has been sought out by politicians and supporters of ballot measures for decades. 
That's right. And I, I think uh, one of the things that happened in the 80s and 90s, um, one was there is a problem with crime victims being disregarded in the criminal justice system. That is a factual reality that's been embedded in American criminal justice for hundreds of years. And describe what you mean by that. Well, when you talk about, uh, you know, prosecuting a crime, it's the state versus the person who is suspected of having committed a crime. It's the state versus the defendant. In that scenario, uh, victims' experiences were not the priority, right, in any part of how the criminal justice system operated for many generations. So victims wouldn't know what was happening in court. Uh, it would be, uh, you know, a plea deal, no idea uh, the result, uh, and victims also not getting resources or support uh, to help recover from the experience of uh, being harmed. That is what has been a problem for a very long time. And then in the 80s and 90s, in response to sort of what was going on politically, as Marisa was describing, there was a solution that was presented to that problem of disregarding victims. And the solution was, let's build up the criminal justice system. Let's give criminal justice bureaucracies a lot more power, a lot more discretion, a lot longer sentences. But there's something that ultimately happened in there that ended up becoming uh, pretty sinister and pretty devastating, which is we built up this criminal justice system that has never been very good at supporting the most common survivors of crime. This is not a system that has uh, treated most communities harmed by crime and violence with respect. And now we've given it even more power in the name of victims of crime. So that's ultimately what uh, so many people are now responding to and getting organized. You know, we talk in our organization about we're building a new safety movement. The, this is a movement of people who have been harmed by crime and violence, who have experienced disregard by the criminal justice system, but are calling for investments in communities as the solution to public safety. And what was the role, as you see it, of race in all of this? It's central. The experience of, uh, you know, how the criminal justice system has demonstrated racial bias, uh, uh, there has been discussion of how that led to over-incarceration and disproportionate over-incarceration for communities of color, especially black and Latino communities. But that's also true in terms of which victims have been disregarded and which victims experience help and support. So we see those same biases, the same lack of humanity play out in how people who are suspected of committing crime are treated and also how people who are hurt by crime and violence are treated. And you can see this in the numbers you know, who gets access to victim compensation, whose application is denied, who even knows about the availability of compensation, where victim services are located, how frequently uh, uh, communities of color get access to those programs. This is a real problem uh, that is so much deeper than uh, the over-incarceration and this problem is not just a problem in, say, conservative red counties, right? I mean, it could be in Alameda County and San Mateo and Santa Clara and San Francisco. Maybe it, maybe race plays into the problems more in a place like Kern County, perhaps. But it's it's not like these liberal blue coastal counties are immune to this. Not at all. And, and looking at uh, victims' rights and when you talk about what's in the law, 
right? Um, what we're talking about is uh, oftentimes these are state-funded programs, right? So the uh, requirements for who's eligible for compensation, well, that's set at the state level, right? So you're going to see that kind of uh, decision-making play out across the state. Frankly, it plays out across the whole entire country. Yeah. And just to jump in on that, Scott, I mean, I know we're going to get deeper into this, but I've been doing a lot of reporting on this issue and talking to families um, who have been impacted, especially by gun violence. And, you know, one of the reasons that it's hard to access this stuff often if you come from a marginalized community is the things we have built into the system that I think you can see as like it, it, it makes logical sense sort of in a vacuum, right? So there are rules that say if you are on probation or parole and you're the victim of a crime, you are not eligible to get any compensation, even if the crime that you are a victim of has nothing to do with your original charge, right? Um, so, you is know, there a move to change that? There is there. It's softened a little now. If you're not, if it's a nonviolent parole or probation violation, I believe that changed a few years ago. So there is a little bit more. But you know, I think a lot of the ways that we built up these systems maybe made logical sense in the, at the time when you're sitting in a hearing room in Sacramento. But when you go out. The, you know, this is it's a messy area. Criminal justice. There's no perfect victim. There's no, um, you know, sort of suspect, perfect suspect in the sense that, you know, they're not. We're all talking about humans here. And I think that a lot of the ways that these laws were written, um, you can see that they didn't necessarily come from sort of from a grassroots perspective of the folks who are most likely to be needing this help in these systems. We are coming up on a break, but I want to bring in Paris Davis. He's Intervention Director at Youth Alive in Oakland. And Paris, tell us, how did you come to the, the work that you're doing? What What is it that got you where you are now? Yeah, I think just being a native of Oakland, you know, growing up in Oakland and just seeing a lot of disparities of what, you know, my community goes through. You know, I was always a person that wanted to um, get back to my community, you know, go seek higher education and come back um, and to be, you know, a leader for my community. You know, I think a lot of people spoke about just the lack of resources and not knowing, right? And I think, you know, um, sometimes, it's, you know, it's on purpose, you know, so I think just being able to be a leader in the community, work for an organization, Youth Alive, that, you know, focuses on prevention, intervention, and healing um, is something that the community needs and it's growing by the second. Mm. Um, so that's in a nutshell how I got Yeah, and I know also you you are also the victim of crime. We're going to bring come back to that after the break. I want to have you talk about that as well and what you experienced in the system. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Have you or a family member been a victim of crime? What was your experience with the system? Give us a ring, 866-733-6786, or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or if you like, you can email us as well. It's forum at kqed.org. Scott Schaefer here this hour from Mina Kim. Much more to come. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking about the uh, conversation on justice for crime survivors, how it's shifting in California. With us, Marisa Lagos, politics correspondent for KQED, co-host of Political Breakdown. Also, Lenore Anderson. She's president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice and Paris uh, um, Davis, Paris Davis. He is the intervention director for Youth Alive. That's an Oakland-based organization that works to prevent violence and intervene in conflict and support victims as well. Again, if you want to join us, the phone number, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Just before the break, uh, Paris, you were talking about uh, the work that you do with Youth Alive. And, and tell us about uh, the crime that you were a victim of uh, you know, when you were in high school, I believe it was. Yeah, so actually, I was just coming home um, from college. Uh, recently, I just got my, my bachelor's degree. Um, I was actually in my neighborhood. Um, a fight broke out. Um, and, you know, I was a victim of gun violence. Um, and ultimately, it derailed my Hoop career. Um, I actually had signed a contract to go overseas to provide for my family. Um, and since then, you know, I kind of had to pick up the pieces. Um, it was a very difficult um, time in my life. Um, my daughter was one at the time. So just trying to figure out, you know, when you put all, your all into something and then for it to kind of be taken away, um, it's not an easy thing to overface. Um, so just trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, very depressed. Uh, feel like I went through all of the emotions. Uh, from top to bottom. And um, I wind up getting a phone call actually from Youth Alive. Um, and one of their lead intervention specialists, JD Rome, um, had came by, you know, my house and talked to me about services, uh, the victims of crime, compensation, and just um, what else was out there, you know, for me to do. Um, and so from there, kind of like really changed my life. I was able to go back to school um, to get my master's degree um, in public health um, administration and um, started as an intern. Uh, with Youth Alive and uh, been, you know, just wanting to better my community. Um, And three years later, now I'm the intervention director at Youth Alive. And what was your experience with the system, you know, before you came to work at Youth Alive? I mean, you must have seen and learned things, experienced things that are really helpful to you in your job now. Yeah, I think I think one just really just being from the community. Right. I think, you know, it takes a community to heal a community. And I think also being on the other side of when I talk to um, clients about what they went through. I'm coming from a place of understanding. I'm coming from a place of I've been there, you know, so really just seeing the disparities uh, head on, you know, it, it gives me an advantage, right? You know, some people will look at it as a disadvantage the way I grew up, but, you know, when, it's, when you're assisting your community, um, the same community that you grew up in, it actually helps you because you're coming from a place of understanding. So I think, you know, just being, you know, uh, African-American male, um, I experienced it all, right? You know, from police to in the school system, you know, not getting the resources that I need. So I feel like I've experienced it all so that, you know, it allows me to be able to help my community uh, in the black and brown community. That's Paris Davis, uh, Intervention Director at Youth Alive, talking with him, Lenore Anderson, and Marisa Lagos. And we want to talk with you as well. So give us a call if you want to 
Tell us your experience uh, as a victim of crime or a family member who uh, was. Give us a ring at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or find us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Here's a tweet from Michael who says, Is it true that as incarceration rates went up across America, homicide rates went down? Does incarceration keep killers and other violent criminals effectively off the streets? Lenore, I imagine you've had that question before. I have had that question before, and what's critical for uh, the public to understand is the data just doesn't bear out the relationship. Criminologists have studied what the uh, impact of lengthy sentencing is on crime rates and have concluded over and over again that there, there is no impact. The National Academy of Sciences came out with the most comprehensive report studying the impact of criminal justice changes on crime as well as incarceration. And what they found is that lengthy sentences are ineffective as a crime control measure. Uh, these are, you know, this was... Which 30, for some people is counterintuitive. It, it is counterintuitive, um, but it's critical that we understand that because it's extraordinarily costly, both in human uh, terms as well as financial terms, to have this extreme incarceration approach to public safety. Uh, just a couple of things that are critical to note as, it, as to why there's no relationship here. Uh, one is that the most crime and violence is not pursued by the criminal justice system. So we see, uh, you know, more than half of all violent crime is not reported to the criminal justice system for the the crime that is reported, far less uh, is prosecuted and results in a conviction or a lengthy sentence. So one, you just have this real small percentage of the actual crime and violence that's happening, even entering the justice system. The other thing that's really critical to understand is there are so many other factors that impact crime and violence rates that the criminal justice system uh, does not uh, have a control over, uh, whether that's what's happening in macroeconomic changes, uh, changes to, um, you know, things like uh, mental health, addiction. Uh, you know, we're living in a time right now, for example, where we've seen significant shifts in uh, some cities' uh, uh, violence rates and this is in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic, where hopelessness is higher than it's ever been. Addiction, suicide, um, you know, overdose. There are so many indicators that are not controlled by the criminal justice system that are as, as to the well-being of our society. So you can see that crime and violence is more connected to that. At the same time, you can easily imagine the family not really caring about, you know, whether it's going to effectively reduce the murder rate. They want punishment, you know, lock them up and, and throw away the key, you know. And, and Marisa, I'll actually ask you, you went to a, a you know, probably, you know, one of the most high profile crimes that we all remember. And I talked about it at the beginning is the poly class kidnapping and murder. Um, perpetrator is on death row, uh, Richard Allen Davis. Um, you went to a dinner last week where two of poly class's sisters spoke. Tell us about that. And then I want to play a cut from one of those sisters, Annie Nichol. Well, Lenore is actually interviewing them on stage. This was uh, the annual conference that her group puts on. And I mean, I, I think, first of all, like, just to set the stage, this is a room um, full of folks from around the state who have suffered a loss. And I would say it was um, 
one of the most heavily African-American rooms that I have been in in Sacramento, probably ever. Um, it is a very diverse group of folks. And I think it's again, it speaks to like who is disproportionately impacted versus who we often hear from in these um, conversations. And. Um, yeah, so the class sisters, um, these, these are Polly Class's stepsisters who lived with her and, and um, were 12 and 6 at the time of her abduction. She was 12 years old. Um, their stepfather, Mark Class, was very instrumental in writing and passing three strikes, both in the legislature um, and 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 in the electorate and then has defended it as there have been several attempts to change it, um, one of which was successful, Prop 36. And in the last few years, um, uh, these women have started talking out about how they feel about the legacy of their sister being used to push what is really one of the harshest criminal sentencing laws in the country's history and one that started in California but really went national. Um, and I think there's yeah, like 30, a, a federal 30 version states. of it as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. So let's hear this cut. This is uh, Annie Nichol, uh, one of, the, one of uh, Polly's stepsisters, uh, talking about the three strikes law and the tough on crime policies that emanated from her death. So this law was passed in our name, but without our consent. Jess and I do not want this law to be in place. Uh, you know, really, we don't want this horrible injustice to be the sum of our sister's life. And we don't want our pain to be used to punish anyone else. Um, three strikes really feels like an example of the justice system co-opting victims' voices for more authority and more profit. And Lenore, why did uh, the, the, the class sisters or the Nickel sisters decide to speak out? Well, the um, summer of 2020, when there was uh, unprecedented uh, protests across the country calling for racial justice and calling for changes to our criminal justice system uh, was a point of inspiration uh, for Annie and Jess, who then uh, decided to uh, uh, come forward and let their uh, feelings be known as it relates to what happened in California. And uh, they put out an opinion editorial in the LA Times a remarkable piece. I would voters and uh, listeners should definitely take a look at it. Um, just talking about sort of uh, what happened in the aftermath and uh, what that's meant for incarceration and racial injustice. Hmm. And Marisa, you've been doing a lot of reporting, not just on crime victims, but also on the attorney general's race and Chase Boudin recall here in San Francisco. And a lot of these issues are coming back up again. Like what is the right approach? How much punishment and how long a sentence is too much versus not enough? Uh, you know, what do you, how do you, you know, interpret all that in the, yeah. in the context of these things? Well, I think there's a few things to note. I mean, uh, the class family is a perfect example of how the same crime can be perpetrated on the same folks and they will come out with different ideas of what justice looks like, right? And so Mark Class, Polly's father, as I said, really pushed three strikes and I believe still believes in it. And um, I think that, you know, this is part of the reason we have an independent criminal justice system, right? We do not let families decide what justice looks like alone. I think what Lenore and I are really talking about here is the question of whether Victims feel heard. And, I, you know, a, a, along with this reporting, um, I know we have some cuts also from a march I went to out in Oakland with a bunch of largely mothers who had lost kids to gun violence. And e each one of them have a different idea of what they would like to see happen. Right. But I think what they what 
what is universal, and I think that this is whether you want to be tough on crime or you think that criminal justice reform is the way to go, you want to feel heard. You want to feel like the prosecutors and police are communicating with you, that they're explaining to you the process, that they're telling you your rights um, and what you can, you know are entitled to when it comes to things like victim compensation. And then for a lot of folks, you know, it, they're not even getting to the point of the conversation around justice because they're still dealing with just the like aftermath of what it looks like. If you, you know, if your loved one was killed at your house or outside your house and you can't live there and you are not in a position with thousands of dollars in the bank to relocate, I mean, the way the, you know, victim's compensation is set up is often you submit receipts after the fact. Um, so just a lot of stuff like that. I think, you know, we think so much about what is the punishment? Did the person get caught? But for a lot of these people, what they're concerned about is their ability to continue to provide and to heal from that trauma without it affecting their kids um, and that they end up in the same situation. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, another kind of victimization. Exactly. I mean, if you can't care for your family, if you can't hold down your job, if you don't have the means to keep yourself safe. And really, I mean, the thing that's impressive to me about a lot of the folks Lenore works with is how open people are um, in communities where I don't think this was historically accepted about the need for mental health treatment, that this is really a moment where you need to sort of wrap the support of everyone around these folks and offer them the ability to start healing, um, whether or not the case has been solved or whatever, you know, the sort of the court case looks like. I'm going to give the phone number out one more time, 866-733-6786. If uh, you or a family member have been a victim of crime, we'd love to hear what your experience was with the system. Paris Davis, bringing you back in, I mean, part of your job is to help crime victims and their family members get get access to these services. What are some of the barriers you find uh, in doing that? Yeah, so I think, you know, anytime we receive a referral for someone that has been um, affected, you know, through gun violence, physical assault or stab, I think sometimes, you know, it's the um, the Cal VCB application process, which was kind of spoken about. Just say what sometimes. that is, Cal VCP. Yeah, so it's the Victims of Crime Compensation. Um, it's an application mm-hmm. that you filled out um, to, you know, get uh, compensation in regards to uh, lost wages, uh, counseling services, health pay medical bills. Um, you know, things like that. And so what usually happens is sometimes, you know, the people are on probation or, you know, sometimes uh, depending on the police report that was submitted hinders them getting access to it. So oftentimes um, clients will say they don't know what happened. Um, and then that can be looked at as they don't want to um, assist, you know, with the investigation um, and they will get denied, you know, that um, that compensation. Yeah. All right, we want to go to the phones now. And again, the number is 866-733-6786. And let's go to Santa Clara. And Dan, welcome. Hi, good day. I'm an attorney. And earlier in my career, I did a bit of criminal work. And I maintain contact with criminal attorneys. I'd like to give a little perspective on how money does influence our criminal justice system. It's a bit of a pay-as-you-go system. Meaning that if you have access to an attorney for a minor crime like smoking pot, which was illegal for a long time, uh, minor things that most youth get involved with at some point and sometimes get caught by the police, it can really affect how that first strike happens. If you have access to an attorney, which in today's dollars cost ten to $15,000, then you're able to avoid getting stuck into what people call the funnel. And then once you end up with that first strike, it's easy to get a second strike and then you get a record and it has a very determinant force on a young person's life. 
So that's a big aspect to the system that people don't often talk about. Yeah. I'd like and to hear your guest's opinion on that. Absolutely. Thanks for the call, Dan. And, and Marisa, it reminds me of another issue you've been reporting on, which is bail and cash bail and how being poor, you know, really forces people sometimes to stay in jail while they're awaiting trial longer than people who have the means to just pay the cash. Absolutely. I mean, our whole justice system is really uh, underpinned by our, you know, broader financial system and, and capitalism. Um, but I think also, you know, this can be the situation, obviously, if somebody is accused of a crime, but often for family members. I think folks who are wealthier often do hire attorneys or, or people who are experts to help them navigate this type of thing, right? And to and to advocate. And you often see, um, you know, again, I just think that, that if you are already from a community and you just don't know how to deal with bureaucracy, I mean, that's a lot of what we're talking about here is like, and do you have the time to deal with it, right? Because, I mean, take or criminal justice out of call. it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Basic. everybody's trying to get a like employment claim filed. I mean, <laughs> we do not have a good track record in our society of making it accessible and easy for folks uh, to navigate the bureaucracies that we've set up. Well, I want to bring in an attorney now, one of our guests, uh, Miriam L. Menchai is director of the California Victims Legal Resource Center. She's also an adjunct professor at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. Miriam, welcome to the program. Good morning. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening, and I assume uh, you, you probably have recognized some of these problems in the system and help people get through it. What are some of the biggest issues that there is some effort, say, in Sacramento to try to address? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm going to start off by saying that the criminal justice system needs reform um, and that it's um, unfair, um, not only to uh, criminal defendants or those accused, but also to victims, um, as highlighted. Um, And I'm excited um, that we're in a moment of time where we are talking about reform. Um, and hopefully um, we can make sure that we're inserting um, victims' rights and ensuring that we're protecting them as we're making reforms. It seems so fundamental, you would think. I mean, that uh, you would keep the the victims of these crimes. There's so much talk about being tough on crime and supporting the police and funding programs and so on and so forth. How is it that victims got forgotten? Sure. So um, victims, um, historically, um, have been kind of left out of the criminal justice system. And that's why we had the, crim- the um, victims' rights movement in the 1970s, um, which where a lot of legislation was passed um, to give victims the opportunity to participate in the criminal justice system. And of course, in California, since 2008, now we have Marcy's Law, um, which gives victims 17 rights in the Constitution. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, victims, as has been noted, right, um, are not represented um, as they're going through the criminal justice system. Um, the state does not represent the crime victim. The state represents the, you know, the interest of the community. And, um, and Miriam, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to cut you off in mid-sentence. We have to take a quick break. We'll come back to that no thought problem. in just a moment. We're talking, of course, about crime victims' rights and the shifting conversation in California. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us if you like. It's forum at kqed.org. Scott Schaefer here this hour from Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And we continue our conversation now with Marisa Lagos from KQED, Lenore Anderson from the Alliance for Safety and Justice, Paris Davis, Intervention Director with Youth Alive, and also Miriam El-Manshahi. She's Director of the California Victims Legal Resource Center at McGeorge School of Law. And again, the number is 866-733-6786 if you want to join us. Miriam, I cut you off right before the break in mid-thought. Uh, I think you were talking about Marcy's Law, which enumerates some of the rights that victims have, uh, even though many of them, you know, don't actually end up getting access to those rights. Exactly. Yeah. So the rights, um, the 17 constitutional rights, unfortunately, are left often without meaning. Um, and victims in my career over the past 10 years have told me that um, they feel like they're not even worth the paper that they're printed on. Um, and, and these rights are really intended to ensure fairness in the process. So procedural fairness for victims um, and that they get the opportunity to get notified about what's happening, which has been highlighted is a, a huge concern for victims. And it's something that um, keeps becoming being violated. Um, so victims get lost in the system um, because it's so complicated. It's, there's so much bureaucracy um, and they really don't have an advocate to help them, a legal advocate to help them go th- as they're going through the process. Um, so we really need to meet our victims where they are and kind of understand what justice means for them, um, as has been mentioned earlier, um, and, and try to help them attain that justice um, while also making sure that all of their other needs are taken care of by ensuring access to services. And Paris Davis, uh, for many people uh, on all sides of this equation, the police uh, are the entry point into this system. And of course, police departments have not had great relationships, especially with communities of color in places like Oakland. Um, Talk about that and how uh, what the folks you work with encounter as they deal with the police in Oakland. Yeah, um, a lot of the community members that we have assisted obviously feel like, you know, they don't get the services that they need, that a lot of their concerns aren't being addressed, um, you know, in regards to the public safety aspect of it, um, which is where we come in, right, and try to, you know, provide some community service, you know, and um, also try to, you know, explain to them that, you know, we all play a part in trying to better our community, um, you know, just try to help them navigate through these things, right? A lot of times when people are physically assaulted or shot or stabbed, they don't know where to start, right? So that is our role is to be able to support them with getting a, re, um, a crime report number when for some reason they are unable to get it from the officer on the scene and things like that. So it's, you know, um, letting them know that, you know, the police are trying to do the best thing, job that they can at times, but also having the community support them with other CBOs like Youth Alive. Marisa? Yeah, when I was um, out with some of the folks from Youth Alive a couple weeks ago at this march, we saw, um, I I talked to a woman who had a son in prison for murder and a son who had been murdered. So Mm. she had dealt with 
sort of all aspects of the system. And um, to their credit, the head of the homicide unit for OPD was out there. One of the assistant deputy district attorneys in Alameda was there. And um, I was talking to the DA about the fact that this mom has a better relationship with the man who prosecuted her kid than the man who was in charge of the other case, um, you know, involving her son being a victim. And it was just a matter of feeling respected and, and communicated with. And so, like, to me, that just says to you, this isn't even about where people are. It's it's about how they treat each other. Well, in Paris, there's also a question of trust. I mean, if you're a crime victim or your family member has been uh, and the police show up, I mean, if, there, if you don't have a good relationship, it can be difficult to trust the police, to tell them things. Um, and then, and that works both ways. I mean, they don't, if they don't have great levels of respect for the community, that can be a problem as you're accessing both a prosecution, but also services and support. Correct. Yes. And how, how do you help people overcome that? Um, a lot of times, you know, it's just coming from, you know, a place of understanding the way that things are set up, right. Um, in regards to the uh, victims of crime compensation, right. A police, uh, report needs to be attached to that. So just understand, uh, helping them understand the importance, right, of, you know, going through the system, right? And our job is to help them navigate that, right? And understanding that you don't have to have a relationship um, with the police department to get things done, right? Um, there are barriers set in place um, to hinder people from ultimately getting the resources that they need, right? And it's our way to help them feel comfortable because we're from the community, so they trust us, right? And for them trusting us, we help navigate them through that process because they are dealing with something, right? It's hard to want to uh, move forward, right? A lot of people haven't never experienced being physically assaulted or even losing someone, right? It's their first time. So when you start talking about um, these are the resources that you have, they're still grieving. So how do you expect the person to navigate the challenges with um, the police department that they may encounter um, with them grieving? And so that's where it comes with, you know, community, you know, being able to assist them, you know, through these processes. Um, like you said, we're building trust, right? Being there with them, showing up, helping them with visuals, helping them with uh, funeral arrangements, that all those things slowly build trust. And then also understand that trust takes time, right? So you can't show up on the scene and just think you're going to get trust. Yeah. I want to play another cut from somebody. And Marisa, this is uh, one of the folks you talked to at that march uh, that you spoke about a moment ago. This is Treva Reed. She's a city council member for East Oakland, District 7. She's also a candidate for mayor. Before we hear it, anything you want to say about it? Her son was killed by gun violence. So she's, she's on the city council, but she's feeling this personally as well. Justice and closure looks different for every family. I don't believe that there's this cookie cutter approach that this is justice. Um, every family has to decide for themselves um, how they process um, the justice that they believe that is due um, where no amount of legal standing or funding or services can ever address the deep pain of not having that loved one there with you again. Like it's, it's, I, it's, I, I'm trying to find words for it um, when you never anticipate and imagine that that one life that was such a critical part of your life is no longer there and feeling that that life has been stolen from you and no resolve. And Lenore, what, uh, obviously restitution, financial restitution isn't going to bring back uh, somebody, a loved one who's been killed. But what does it mean? I mean, when you get beyond like help with housing or whatever it might be, funeral arrangements, is there is there a some kind of a psychological impact that it has? 
Well, there's two uh, key uh, impacts of providing dignity and services uh, to victims. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, when uh, survivors do not get help uh, recovering from crime or violence, uh, they face uh, huge hurdles. There's financial debt that builds up. There's loss of housing, oftentimes loss of ability to take care of your children. You may have become physically uh, disabled and no longer able to do the work you were doing. So you need a new uh, pathway to employment. Um, there, there are many, many, many uh, financial uh, and physical impacts and also psychological uh, PTSD uh, sleeplessness, uh, anxiety, these are all uh, normal, normal reactions that anyone would have facing uh, the kinds of trauma that uh, emerge uh, in the aftermath of crime and violence. The question is, why don't we provide the kind of basic support that people experiencing the impacts of trauma uh, need to recover? There's a second uh, impact of crime and of supporting victims that I want to lift up here, and that's public safety. The number one indicator that you're going to be a victim of crime or violence is if you have been one in the past. And so it's actually improving public safety to help victims get the kinds of services that Paris is providing. Uh, you know, organizations like Youth Alive are literally saving lives and stopping the cycle of crime, and they're doing it operating on a dime. While we're spending literally billions over here on prisons when we could be stopping the cycle of crime and preventing victims from becoming victims again through the kinds of programs that Paris is running. And I, yeah, and I just think it's important, you know, we had the question earlier about crime rates. I've done a lot of talking to criminologists this year, and I think it's important to note how little we understand about what does drive violent crime, that there are really often a myriad of factors from economic, um, you know, to uh, civil unrest can often lead to it. Um, you know, there, there's so many things. And, and COVID obviously was this big sort of weird uh, moment. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, if folks, you know, we have a lot of conversations right now around DAs and prosecutions and we're talking about prisons. The truth is police do have a role to play. Um, you know, what what actually deters crime more than how what the sentence might be is whether you think you're going to get caught at all. Right. And so I think that if we can do a better job of having groups like Youth Alive actually working hand in hand with police departments and having law enforcement listening to what is needed on the ground, that you can actually make some really big changes um, to these communities and really support folks. All right, let's go back to the phones. And uh, Ravi in East Oakland, you're next. Welcome. Yes, uh, East Oakland. I live near uh, Willie Wilkins Park, which is named after an officer who was killed in the line of duty. And it is full of garbage on a daily basis. I myself live in an area that is uh, crime goes on every day, all day long, all around here. Police drive by it. They don't do anything. I have approached many police officers and talked to them because I feel I have a right because my grandfather was shot in the line of duty doing police work on his off-duty time. And here I am, a disabled veteran, watching police drive by crime after crime and let criminals and bad people and people do things that they shouldn't be doing. I have a bullet in my front window I ha which has done nothing about it. I have a friend that lives around the corner who had seven shots at night in his own bedroom. 
He's lucky to survive. Another person that lives at Willie Wilkin Park got shot. He's back over there. This place is full of mental health issues, and there's nobody helping us on any level. 900, 700 police, whatever they have, bless their hearts. Um, that more police is not going to do it. When I talk to them, they all have the same excuse. They blame their inactivity to prevent crime on the city council. And I tell them straight up, you're a police officer. You need to do police work. And we're not protected here. We live in daily crime. You're talking about post-traumatic crime. We go on every day. Everybody's scared here. Yeah, Ravi, thank you for Nobody's that. Nobody's helping us. Please send somebody into deep East Oakland to help us. Do you talk to the, 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 the city council person from your area? I, I have gone. When I first moved in this neighborhood, I went to all the meetings. I tried to get the park cleaned up. I did everything. But it's as systemically broken as the rest of the system. It is infiltrated by moderators that have an agenda, and that is it. Uh, Lenore, just quickly, uh, this is sort of, uh, or actually, Marisa, I'm sorry, what you were saying earlier about whether, you know, uh, f- folks feel they can get away with it. And obviously, there's a sense in, in his neighborhood that, you know, the cops aren't really paying attention. Yeah. And I mean, maybe that's we, not yeah, fair. This, we could get into a bigger conversation about policing, but I, I certainly think this is not an uncommon story that you hear from folks in marginalized neighborhoods, Lenore. Actually, before you give that answer, I just want to say this is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Scott Schaefer. Lenore Anderson. So, you know, it's just devastating listening to uh, the description the the caller is is presenting. Uh, You know, that's exactly what the problem is when we have such a wildly out of whack um, spending plan as it relates to public safety. It's totally imbalanced. We we do not at all invest enough in prevention. We let crisis turn into crime all the time and then wonder what to do after it. There's the, he talked about mental health. I, I couldn't agree more. Mental health crisis assistance is d- deeply needed. Violence prevention programs, deeply needed. Reentry programs, extremely underfunded. Uh, there are the building blocks, the prerequisites for a safe community are not being met. And then we're wondering why we have so, such a deep cycle of crime, especially in uh, moments of societal crisis. So we've got to start investing in the building blocks for safety at the neighborhood level. And that's about crisis assistance for mental health. It's about reentry. It's about community-based victim services. And it's about violence prevention. At the same time, Marisa, as I said earlier, we are involved in this conversation about rising crime rates and a sense that maybe those kinds of reforms and investments either haven't worked or have gone too far. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I think that this is where we get back to the crime rate conversation, which is if you look at what happened during 2020 and into 2021, crime rates went up in Dallas. They went up in Chicago. They went up in places. Kern County. Kern County. Right. So this is not a problem that we are only seeing in places where there has been a new look at the way we approach criminal justice. Um, This is a problem that really spans many areas. And ironically, a place like San Francisco has actually seen far less increase in violent crime than most places. But the property crime challenges have really overshadowed that. All right, let's go back to the phones. And Eileen in Sacramento, welcome. Hi, thank you for uh, taking my call. I am a registered nurse. I have worked 
in ERs all over the state of California. I had 42 years of nursing. And um, I am white Canadian. So you you can see where my background is. But I have a deep um, sense of injustice for people and a deep sense of caring and a deep sense of wanting to help people make it right. But unfortunately, it's very difficult because of the fact that I'm not trusted. And um, how can I know what they go through as a white Canadian woman? And um, it's very hard to make that contact. We are the first point of contact for an awful lot of these crime victims. Um, the ER the, in the hospital I work in is extremely unusual. Very, very high um, assault patients, gunshot wounds. It's a trauma center, and it's in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Hmm. So it's not in your typical um, neighborhood, but we see so much of it. Hmm. And we're so busy. So getting that help out, I mean, we really need to start right at the very beginning, come at it with a sense of no, um, you have, you you can't be judgmental. You can't um, on either side, you know? Let let me just bring um, in, um, get it, because we're getting to the end of the hour. Eileen, thank you so much. Uh, Lenore, did you want to say something? Uh, Paris's organization, Youth Alive, they, they're hospital-based, and every single hospital should have a Youth Alive. There's yeah. just really no reason that it has to be a special program funded on the side. Pa- Paris, tell us a little bit about that. What, what kind of work does your group do in hospitals? Yes, so we receive referrals, and from there we have our, our violence interrupters, which are people that have strong ties to the community, conduct a, a, a safety assessment. So you'll be surprised, you know, um, a police would usually go first and try to conduct a safety assessment and usually get nothing. And then you have our violence interrupters go meet them at bedside, conduct a safety assessment to see, you know, where they didn't intend to target, do they need to relocate, you know, what the issues were. And then from there, you know, once upon discharge, um, our intervention spe- specialist, which is basically our term for a case manager, uh, would meet them there and assist them, you know, from there, right, with filling out the victims of crime compensation, providing mentorship, um, taking them to and from um, medical appointments, and really just helping them get back to stability, whatever stability looks like per, you know, each client. Yeah. Um, getting to the end of the hour here, but Miriam uh, Almanchay, I want to ask you, uh, what is happening in Sacramento? Are there some bills that are going through the legislature that might address some of these issues and provide a counterbalance to uh, some of the other voices, uh, you know, that are pushing for stronger penalties, revisions to things like Prop 47 and so on? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of bills um, currently uh, pending um, in the legislative body. And what's interesting about some of these bills is that um, you don't have uniform support um, from all victim service agencies um, and folks in criminal justice. Um, So we really need to look at um, these bills um, from the lens of a victim um, to make sure that um, they're in line um, with ensuring that victims' rights are upheld um, and that access to all victims are provided. All right. Thank you so much. That's uh, Miriam Alman Shai, Director of California Victims Legal Resource Center at McGeorge School of Law. Thanks to her and our other guest, Marisa Lagos, KQED's politics correspondent, Lenore Anderson, president of the Alliance for Safety and Justice, and Paris Davis, intervention director for Youth Alive. Thanks so much to all of you and to our listeners for comments and calls today. I'm Scott Schaefer in Fermina Kim. Thanks for listening.
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.